Welcome to the sermon podcast of Twin Oaks Christian Church. This podcast is for the Twin Oaks community and beyond. What you'll find here is an honest exploration of the Bible that takes seriously the world around us while being informed by 2,000 years of the Christian tradition. This approach allows us to seek wisdom from the past as we face the future together as disciples of Jesus. Such a thought roots us in a living and diverse tradition, allowing us to explore critically the mystery of our faith. I'm happy you're joining us today, and I hope you're edified by what you hear. Be to Ephesians chapter 3. Give me an amen when you're there. Perfect. Thanks, Steve. Not too loud in these first two rows, please. Is that painfully awkward? It is the loudest section right now, for sure. Yeah, Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 21. Give me an amen when you're there. There we go. Let's dive in. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Open up our ears to what it is your spirit has to say to us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. By the power of your Holy Spirit, O God and Father. Amen. All right, so this Ephesians passage is one that I've been kind of mulling on for a little while now. Uh, For the last two weeks, in fact, uh, I was planning to preach on this last week. And, um, you know, as you dive into a text, uh, I remember I used to be asked somebody, they would would, uh, ask me, how is it that you determine what is the most important part of a text? And what is the most important, important part of the text for you when you preach? And I remember reading through the passage and being like, everything, all the things are important, right? But I've since learned that sometimes you have to emphasize one thing over another. And as I was trying to do that, as I was trying to narrow in, I was wrestling with whether or not to be focused in on this rooting, being rooted and grounded in love, or whether we should be kind of focusing in on whether we should be strengthening ourselves within our inner being. And yes, all those things are good. But, but then at the end of the passage, you have this beautiful line that I absolutely love in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, part one, and then part two is the part that gets me, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, think about that for a minute. What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of God? I think of Gregory of Nyssa, and I think about how this is an impossible task that's put in front of us. Gregory of Nyssa believes that there is no boundary for God, because if there is a boundary where God is somehow, then that means that there is something that God is not, which makes God not God in a very classical sense. 
So because God is God, there is no boundary with God. So how on earth do you get the infinite God with no boundaries that has no place where there is not God? How do you get that God to fill you up in all your fullness? How do you experience that in a very real way? So I decided I don't know that I want to focus on that because that seems like an impossible task, so maybe we should just skip it, right? But no, no, I wanted to dive in further because there are rich theologies based off of this. We as Christians have been, uh, not even just as Christians, we as humans have been called a people who were made in the image of God. Of all the creatures of the cosmos, we have been made in the image of God. And Orthodox theologians often often talk about sort of the difference between being created in the image of God, which everybody has, and then the likeness of God. Now, you've heard me talk about this before, but I think this image is a beautiful image. It's the image of a mirror. Each and every one of us, as an image of God, is a mirror. But then, to what degree we reflect the image of God varies. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, for now I see in a mirror dimly and then face to face. And remember the first century, second century, if you were looking in a mirror, it wasn't pristine like what we have right now. You might have a reflection in the water like Mulan does, and it's really still pond water, and you're like, oh good, I can see myself. That might be the best that you get. But beyond that, you had a distorted figure of what you looked like. It was either too dim or was bent, and so it was out of shape. So you didn't have a real good sense of what that reflection was. And so as Christians, what we have been called to do is to move beyond just being image bearers, which is a beautiful thing, to restoring that likeness of God within us. And it makes me think of Colossians chapter 1, where it says that he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So what that tells me is that Jesus is a perfect, not just image bearer, but reflection of the likeness of God. And what that means is we now have that reflection in front of us, and that distortion that was there is now being slowly wiped away because we got some killer Windex, and it's working great, right? You're getting all the junk off because you brush your teeth and it flies everywhere. I recently got an electric toothbrush and have realized the sins of the electric toothbrush, which is if you don't know how to use it, you're either drooling or it's flying everywhere on the mirror. And so I have learned the beauty of wiping that distortion down. And so part of what we have been called to do because Jesus is the image of the invisible God and further in Colossians, it says that he was filled with God in its perfectness and its perfection, then we need to look to Jesus in order to restore that likeness. And that's lovely and beautiful. And so we can say, oh, look, there's Jesus and I'm going to try and do what Jesus does. And that's good. But then what are the practical things that we can do? And why would we even want that? Because let's be honest, if you look at the life of Jesus, was it easy or was it complicated? Yeah, Jesus' life was complicated. I love to think about Jesus because he brought those massive crowds around, 5,000 people, 4,000 people. That part sounds real great. But then the denial from his family, the denial from friends, the denial from society at large, so much so that he's put on a cross, is painful to see in every aspect. Being Jesus was not easy. 
Jesus was ultimately crucified, which was symbolic of what was happening throughout his entire life as he lived with the power of God. So why would we want this? And I think the answer comes in verse 20. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That first line there in verse 20 is key. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. When you are filled with the goodness of God, when you are filled with the likeness of God, we are assured here in verse 20 that we will be able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. Now, if you were to ask 12-year-old Aaron what that meant, it'd be like, okay, God, I'm going to ask big. I want to go to the NBA. Let's do it. Help me grow. I got to be six foot three because that's, you know, three inches shorter than Michael Jordan. I'm okay to be a little bit shorter than him. Give me a little more hops than him. We'll be good. Ask big, right? Not only that, I know I said this very, very early on, seven and a half years ago in my ministry here. I know I shared this story with you, but my dream, my goal in life was seriously to join the NBA and then also to play in the MLS because that works out just fine. You know, I'm like Bo Jackson basically is what I'm thinking of myself. That's not like dreams of grandiosity or anything like that. But my, my goal was to play in the MLS so, so that I could donate all of my money to charity, buy my parents a motorhome, which they didn't want. And then, you know, because they, why not buy us a house? Like at least it builds, you know, over time. Like a motorhome that depreciates in value. That's ridiculous. No, thank you. And I don't even think they want a motorhome. Anyhow, that aside, my goal was to be altruistic with one and then, you know, survive on my MBA money because we all know that nobody in the MBA makes any money, right? Like it's absolutely insane. And then, of course, there's other deals that come with that too. So it's absolutely absurd. So 12-year-old Aaron is thinking this, like this is what it means to ask for more, abundantly far more than all we can imagine, more than I thought I could accomplish. So maybe I'll even be the greatest player in the NBA. Maybe I'll be the greatest player in the MLS too. I mean, that is great. Dreams of grandiosity are beautiful, aren't they? Except for they're absurd and completely selfish, which is not what this text is saying at all. In fact, what this text is saying, I think, is more akin to what parents feel when they have their first child. You didn't realize what you were capable of before you had that child. I remember when Jude was born, he couldn't eat on his own. He was tongue-tied. He was born what's called technically late preterm, which, mean which means he came as early uh, as they could induce him. And so he was 5.7 pounds when he was born, and we were trying to feed him. And I remember we stayed in the hospital for three extra days, came home, then had to go back to the hospital for two extra days because he was losing weight rapidly. And I remember trying to get him to eat more than just one ounce of milk. And the way that we would do it is we had to wake up every one to two hours, Bethany and I did, and it was a tag team thing. This was not something we could have done alone, and we would have to put the syringe on our finger. There was a little syringe filled with one ounce of milk, and then one of us would have to sit there holding him, massaging his neck so that he would swallow because he couldn't swallow on his own, while the other one was sticking their pinky in his mouth with the little tube from the syringe slowly putting the milk into his mouth 
forcing him to swallow. I didn't realize that I was capable of doing things like that. I didn't realize that I was able to accomplish staying up for two hours or just getting two hours of sleep a night and then going to work the next day and still plowing through that. No, I'm not recommending that and saying, like, God has created us to be workhorses so you can, you can work 70-hour weeks. Now get out there and do it, y'all. That's not what that means. What it means is that in this life, sometimes we are capable of accomplishing far more than what we ever thought we could. The other side of that, beyond just working really hard or whatever that is, the other thing that can happen, that happened with my kids, is I didn't realize how much I could love and, and feel the, the hurt too, like the pain and fear of losing something. I didn't realize how deeply I could love a small little creature. And what was scary in those first days is like, we don't know if he can eat. And the scariest thing for us in that moment wasn't the fact because the nurses could come in and they could figure it out, but then when they send us home, the question is, are we going to be able to take care of our child? And not only that, you start to internalize something, like, is there something wrong with me? Is there a reason we can't figure this out? And then you live with those doubts for a long time as your child is struggling along. And so you love your child so deeply, but then you have this extreme fear that wasn't there before. Not to mention, in addition to that, I remember when Jude was three and I decided to fly out to Tennessee to finish my degree, I was afraid to get on the airplane. I had something to lose all of a sudden. You know, I mean, like, I always accepted, like, you know, I've said this before, but like, I've, I've always accepted the fact that when I get on an airplane, it's probably going to be my last day because I'm always like terrified. So I buckle up and like, I can't do this, you know, and I just sort of like start to like sort of pass out there. But then... With Jude, I was genuinely panicked. Because, like, I know that i got to get back to Bethany, but Bethany will be all right without me. I'm sure of it. I know it. But, but, but Jude, I don't know. I don't know. And so you feel that deep distress within you. Feelings of deep love and sadness that you didn't know were even in you at all. This, I think, is the kind of thing that this text is talking about. Not asking for so much that you can live this beautiful lifestyle, but rather pushing beyond what you thought you could. So the question then is, if we can become that kind of person, who we are truly made to be in our fullness, how is it that we can get there in a practical sense? And I think there are a couple of things that Paul puts out there for us. And these have actually historically been put into practice, into a practice that I want us to learn today. Notice with me in verse 16 what it says. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit. That's the first part. We need to learn how to strengthen our inner being. Now, this is sort of an odd thing because the word inner being is your inner humanity. This isn't the word anthropos, so if you have the word man in there, it's not the word man, and it's not the word woman. It's the word for all of humanity. Find a way to strengthen your inner being. What this means is that you need to know who you are. I remember a couple of years ago at being asked in therapy, do, do you have a hobby? And I was like, a hobby? No. I've tried hobbies. They didn't work for me. I didn't have the time for it, you know? And then slowly but surely, I, I started to think, okay, well, if I got to do a hobby, if I got to be well, then I need to figure out what my hobbies are. And I can tell you, it was really pathetic for me, but I could not figure out what the things were that I liked. 
So what do you do in that scenario? Start trying different things on. So thanks be to God for Jeremy, Jocelyn, and Cody. I joined an indoor soccer team. Guess what? Hobby I love? Soccer. Problem now? I don't want to get injured. It costs money to get injured, I found out. (laughs) I don't like that as much. But nonetheless, it was a hobby. So you start to build those things up within you because if you can start to develop those hobbies, if you can start to strengthen your inner being when hard things come along, you are able to withstand them better. It doesn't mean that you're just going to breeze through it. That's not how that works in life. When we have shock waves in our families, when we have shock waves in our lives, difficulty will come. And we need to acknowledge those feelings of depression, anxiety, everything that comes. But it is good to have an outlet that can build you up in strength. It is good to have a community that can come around you and help you stand strong in those difficult times. So one, you need to know yourself in order to strengthen your inner being. Because each and every one of us, let's be honest, is different. We don't all like the same stuff. Then the other thing about this text that I like, this line in verse 16, is this word for strengthen. It's the word kriteo. This word means uh, like power, strength, but it can also mean mastery. Mastery. I love this this word because we live in a world where we can just go over here and over there. We can try all different kinds of things. But what this is suggesting is that we learn to master something. So maybe you take that hobby and you master it and you strengthen your inner being. What are the things in your life that you do that you think, ah, if only I could master that, that would be lovely. See, this is one of the things that the ancient philosophers and theologians would talk about, you know, the pursuit of virtue. You see the thing that's good, you practice the good, which is the erite or the virtue, and then you experience human flourishing upon completing that, when it becomes a second part of your nature, of who you are. Because you're no longer somebody who's just trying for something, but you are becoming literally a different kind of human being who can add this kind of value not to just your life, but to the lives that are around you. What are those hobbies that you can learn to master that can help the world, that help you find sort of your deepest passions, if you will? Now, I want to go a little bit further because those are things that we can do in a very practical sense, but I also want us to look at the word that's used and how he says we are going to do this, uh, that he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being, in your inner world, in your inner humanity with power through his spirit. The word power here is dunamis. Dunamis means power. It can also mean ability, to increase your ability. To, to be able to diversify it and also to be able to go deep within it. And then he uses the word his spirit. And I love this word spirit. Pneuma in Greek, ruach in Hebrew. Now, you all know the trifold meaning of this word spirit, wind, or breath. Spirit, wind, or breath. So you could read this in various different ways, with power through his breath, with power through his spirit, with power through his wind. Less likely wind there, right? We're not going to go in that direction. It can get weird fast. But nonetheless, spirit or breath can be powerful. You know how we have in our culture this emphasis on meditation? 
Have you noticed this? There's an emphasis on meditation, on being present in the now. And a lot of times people will say, we're drawing from Buddhism here. And in a lot of scenarios, people are drawing on Buddhism. But did you know that there are ancient Christian practices that were psychosomatic? As in, these were practices that involved not just your spirit and your mind, but also your body. The monks, it is said, with the Jesus prayer, would get down on their, on their knees, probably about six to nine inches up like this, and they would get down on their knees, and then they would have their head, their eyes, they would face their heart, and they would recite the Jesus prayer. You all familiar with the Jesus prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they had these prayer beads that, that look like a rosary. There's 33 different you know, notches on there. And then you go through it and you recite it that many times or beyond. Sometimes even spiritual masters or, or theologians will suggest or pastors will suggest that you do this for an entire hour. And what you do is you learn to breathe in Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and then breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. So you breathe in the name of Christ and you breathe out the sin. That's sort of the beautiful idea behind it. This is a psychosomatic practice. It does something in your mind, but it also involves your body. And this helps us to counteract sort of our Western worldview that draws on Plato for this idea of our bodies being one thing and our minds or our spirits being a completely other thing or our soul being something that's entrapped within our bodies. This is inherently, I think, unchristian. There are some Christian you know, branches of theology that see it this way, but I think the majority of them sort of took this Aristotelian view, which is that the soul is that which animates the entire body. It's not just within you. It is the thing that it makes you alive. You cannot separate body and soul. There's no distinction there. You aren't separate beings. You don't have a body. You are a body. You don't have a mind. You are a mind. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You are spirit, soul, and body, mind, all of these things in one, which means that when we take breathing and Christian meditation seriously, it actually has the power to transform us. This was so much so that those same monks who would learn to breathe in and out the name of Jesus would also be able to make a pattern or a rhythm of that prayer based off of their heartbeat. This is something that they could do after they had mastered the breathing practice. They could create a rhythm based off of their own heartbeat. Imagine being so in sync with your body that you could pray and breathe the name of Jesus. So when he says, I want you to be strengthened in your inner being with power from his spirit, Many Christians in the earliest centuries took this to be a very real and pragmatic thing. And so they literally filled themselves with the spirit of Jesus by bringing and breathing in the name of Jesus. How many of you have ever tried breathing practices? Yeah, helpful at all? Now for me, it wasn't helpful at first. 
I started just to breathe. <gasps> I do a lot of the shallow breaths. I'm very good at shallow breaths. <laughs> Anybody else out there? Super good at shallow breaths, which is why I have to learn how to breathe and be conscious of it. So I learned, I read this book on breathing. And this book on breathing was talking about that the perfect breath is essentially 5.7 seconds long. It helps you to breathe in and get toxins out, all that stuff. It actually helps you, which is strange because that's close to how long the Jesus prayer takes, right? Because it slows your body down. It brings you here into the present moment so that you can experience Yahweh. Or what does Yahweh mean? I am what I am. I am this moment, right? So you can experience God. The material and immaterial are inextricably linked for the Christian, which is why I want to go on further. So he does say, so that he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit. And here's part two in verse 17. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. This I love because the word for dwelling, we talked about this before, John chapter 1, it says in the beginning when God, uh, or no, I'm sorry, I'm starting to quote Genesis 1, in the beginning uh, the word was with God and the word was God. And if you read further in verses 14 through 17, it says that the word took up flesh and dwelled among us. And I remember talking about just a few weeks ago how the word for dwelled among us is the Greek word skene, which means tabernacle among us, to, to pitch a tent among us for lack of a better term. And so that's literally what Jesus does. But here it goes a step further. The word for dwelling in your heart is not just dwelling like a tabernacle where it moves around. It's katoikeo. And this word katoikeo is a combination of two Greek words. The first one is kata, which means according to in the accusative, and then you bring it down. The word means to come down as well. And the word oikeo, you've probably heard the word economy, Right? It comes from oikonomi, right? Oikos means house or household or dwelling. It's a more permanent dwelling than a tent is. So that Christ may, katoikeo, dwell in your hearts. The idea is that Christ is coming down through the breath to dwell permanently within your heart. And the heart in ancient Christian literature isn't just an organ that pumps blood, although it is that. It's also the seed, the place where heaven and earth are said to meet. It's the place where Christ is enthroned. It's the moment where the thoughts or the pleroma or the fulfilled things, which is the word there, now come into being where the workings of the Spirit are. By the way, the word for workings that you see coming up in Ephesians over and over again is the word energes, which is where we get our word energy. So the energies of God come to us through the heart when Jesus is at the center of our heart. Are you seeing a pattern of how when you breathe in the Spirit and put Christ on your heart, breathe in the Spirit down to your heart, that you start to be filled with the fullness of God because you've got the Spirit and you've got Jesus who point us to the Father, that we might know who the Father is. Remember what Jesus says in John about the Father and Jesus? I and the Father are what? One. I 
and the Father are one. In a very real and practical sense, you can experience God by learning to breathe in the Spirit and allowing Christ to dwell in your hearts. Now, this is something I've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks and was actually able to talk with a psychologist about this. And they were interested in what I was studying. They were asking me about the Jesus prayer and all of that. And I was telling them, like, oh, yeah, there's basically like these three parts. You've got the mind right here. They call this prayer, the Jesus prayer, a noetic prayer, using the mind. Noos is the word for mind. It starts in your mind, and as you breathe in, it enters into your body, and you breathe down into your heart, but you want to have a good spiritual practitioner if you're going to learn how to breathe the name, because the other thing that can happen is it can go lower than your heart, right, down into your guts, or in Greek, the splachna. I love the splachna. It's like one of my favorite Greek words. And he's like, that is so interesting. I was like, yeah, it probably sounds hokey and all that stuff. He's like, no, 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 it doesn't. I was like, what do you mean, Why? She says, because that's where the majority of our nerve endings are, our mind, our heart, and in our splachna, or in our guts. That's where those nerve endings are. So you can see how the earliest Christians actually had some knowledge about the body, and that the body, the spirit, and the mind were all one. If we can learn how to pay attention to that, we can be strengthened in our inner being while Christ is dwelling in our hearts. And the energies or the workings of God can then fill us up in our bodies, yes, so that we are filled with the fullness of God, but then we can go even beyond that. And when they talk about the Jesus prayer in particular, what I love about it is that not only are you being enlightened, so to speak, in the moment to where you are experiencing the fullness of God, but then you have the ability to take that with you everywhere you go because you can learn to breathe that prayer so that you can fulfill what Paul says, pray without ceasing. So even when you aren't saying the words, you're proclaiming the name of Jesus through your breath. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I want to be like, wow, gasp, that's amazing. You probably already knew that. That's fine. But nonetheless, what it also does too, if you want to use this not just for yourself, you can also use this for other people. Callistus Ware has written a book on the Jesus Prayer that I highly recommend. It's like 97 pages, very short. Love this book. He talks about intercessory prayer through the Jesus Prayer. Now, he doesn't say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on Sarah because she needs it, right? We don't, it's not like that, right? But we all need it. <laughs> but my point in bringing it up is that he says, don't put the name of somebody in there. Rather, before you start the Jesus prayer, think about those people. Put them on your mind and then pray for mercy for yourself. Just utter the prayer in its simplicity. Breathe it in, breathe it out. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me a sinner. Because what happens to you in that moment is you are being filled with the presence of Christ. You too will now be able to see the presence of Christ in the world around you. I mean, you know this. If, if you've gotten into the breathing techniques, one of my favorite breathing techniques that they've used in trauma therapy has been the VU technique. You want to hear it? Are you sure? All right. This is going to be really weird. You go like this. You find this spot your chest vibrates the most. You breathe in real deep. You guys all do it with me. And then you say, voo, but in that deep rattling part of your chest. All right, you ready? One, we're going to do it together. I'm not doing this alone. One, two, three. 
Right? Okay, so you do that for a while, and it actually, um, you know, signals and it starts to work out your vagus nerve or your vagal nerve. And anxiety can be released in a very real way because we hold it there, down from the stomach, up into the heart, and into the mind. And this is stuff that they're, they're showing us now today in psychology and biology. It's beautiful. So if you can learn to pray the name of Jesus, your body will relax. You will see Jesus in others and see Jesus in the world around you. So in a sense, in a very real sense, you will be filled with the fullness of God because you'll recognize the fullness of God within you and you'll recognize the fullness of God around you. That sounds like something worth pursuing to me because not only does it transform us, it transforms the world around us. Amen? Amen. Holy God, we thank you for giving us not just the Jesus prayer, but this writing of Paul. And I pray with Paul that according to the riches of his glory that he may grant that we may be strengthened in our inner being with power through your spirit and that Christ you may dwell in our hearts through faith as we are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that we may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with the fullness of God and that you could accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine as we come together to glorify you. We ask these things in the name of the resurrected Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, O God and Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Twin Oaks Christian Church. For more information about Twin Oaks, please visit our website at twinoakseugene.com.